Welcome to episode 28 of the Lady Science Podcast. This podcast is a monthly deep dive on topics centered on women and gender in the history and popular culture of science. With you every month are the editors of Lady Science Magazine. I'm Anna Reeser, co-founder and co-editor-in-chief of Lady Science. I'm Layla McNeil, the other founder and editor-in-chief of Lady Science. And I'm Rebecca Ortenberg, Lady Science's managing editor. Uh, and before we uh, get right into the show, just to make an announcement, uh, we are going to be running a series um, in the magazine about gender, technology, and disability, and that um, will be running in March. So uh, we're getting we're pretty excited about it, and so stay tuned for that. We've been pitches have been coming in as uh, we're recording this, and I'm pretty excited about them. Uh, so stay tuned. Uh, so to, to bring us to today, um, we're going to be talking about something that all of us go through um, and that I think women are particularly attuned to because of, you know, culture gestures broadly. <laughs> but in any case, we're talking about aging. Um, and specifically, we're going to be talking about menopause. Uh, yeah, so you heard that, right? We're going to be talking about old lady bodies uh, later. <laughs> um Later in the episode, uh, we have a great interview for you with Dr. Susan Mattern, who has written a book about the history of menopause and how aging women have been thought about in different times and places. Um, but to start off our conversation, uh, do you guys happen to know what the exact definition of menopause is? I think uh, if I can remember like the precise scientific language, it means women have outlived their usefulness. <laughs> <laughs> Is that correct? Um, it's time it's to get not rid of correct. Them. Um, <laughs> so officially, menopause refers to the cessa cessation of menstruation. Say that five times fast. Um, and and the only diagnosis of menopause is that you have gone one year without having your period. Um, so technically, you are menopausal on the one day after you have not had your period for one year. Um, and before that, you are premenopausal. And after that, you are postmenopausal. So uh, it's really just refers to that one day, one year after your period stops <laughs> for the last time. Um, but when people talk about menopause, uh, even when they're not just saying it, it means that women are no longer useful to the world, um, they're usually not referring to uh, that exact like scientific definition. Um, usually, it involves like. A collection of symptoms that are sort of out in popular culture. The change, as it were. That seems to be <laughs> how it's always referred to in like period movies. You know, well. <laughs> <laughs> yes. You know what I mean. yes. The change. The change. Yeah, I think my, and this is probably the case with a lot of people that their most common uh, interaction or engagement with menopause is knowing someone who complains about hot flashes <laughs> yeah <laughs> i also uh remember i remember when um when my mom i remember in the 90s my mom had gone through menopause and uh suddenly she was talking a lot about like well not a lot but sometimes about like the various like health 
um, possibilities of estrogen replacement therapy, which we'll be talking about later, and how she's like, yeah, it's supposed to, like, help stop osteoporosis and Alzheimer's disease, which are both things that, like, run in my family. Um, and so I feel like my knowledge of it came from that, and we'll be talking actually a little bit later about how that became a thing and why it's sort of weird. Yeah. My mom has taken the the opposite approach of like talking about her symptoms or about, you know, any health benefits. She just like she just dunks on me when I have my period now. <laughs> <laughs> She's just like, damn, I'm glad I don't have to go through that anymore. Thanks. All right, I'm out of here. God. <laughs> Give me that heating pad. I'm leaving. <laughs> Not gonna lie, I'll probably do that too. Hell yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> that sounds well-earned. Can't wait. Yeah. <laughs> what we're trying to get at here is that when people say menopause, they're talking about a collection of symptoms that affect women around the time that they stop menstruating, rather than the sort of more technical definition of the actual cessation of menstruation. Menstruation cessation. Good band name. The, so the collection... <laughs> I'm imagining this now sort of, old lady rockers. I'm sorry. Like, like, this babe, like. Good. <laughs> <laughs> so this sort of collection or constellation of symptoms is called menopausal syndrome. And it includes, um, you know, the classics that we've been talking about, your hot flashes, your vertigo, high blood pressure, headaches, insomnia, mood swings. And it's generally thought that these symptoms, especially the sort of super cliche ones like hot flashes, are due to a decrease in the amount of estrogen produced in the body. But here is a fun fact. The word menopause did not even exist until the 19th century. Um, and that collection of symptoms that I just described and their connection to women aging and ceasing to menstruate doesn't really come up in medical literature until actually until the 18th century. So people talk about how women eventually stop menstruating and are no longer allowed. Allowed. (laughs) 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 No longer able to have babies. (laughs) So you'd get mentions in the literature of women stopping menstruation and they, you know, not being able to have babies anymore. But there's not really a connection to, you know, the end of menstruation and this sort of constellation of symptoms until we get to the 18th century. We have spent a lot of time on this show talking about the many insane things that philosophers and scientists and doctors have thought about women's bodies over the centuries. And I believe this all was kind of... (laughs) came together in episode eight so go back and listen to that weird things men have said about women's bodies um and they've come up with all sorts of conditions like green sickness and hysteria and blamed all sorts of medical maladies on the wandering womb and a lot of these like weird and terrible conditions are in some way connected to a woman's reproductive cycle and generally give the impression that any woman who is not actively making babies is physically broken and Yet for a long time, though, the end of a woman's reproductive years didn't seem to interest them very much. Um, And this is, I guess, another fun fact. Aristotle doesn't even have much to say about it. And he had opinions about everything. 
So from the ancient world to the 17th century, the closest thinkers have come to talking about something like menopausal syndrome is the belief in something called the quote, climactic, which is not what I ever learned climactic was <laughs> or referred to. Um, the climactic, uh, which was also called the critical age, was based on this ancient idea that the human body went through seven-year cycles and that men and women were physically and mentally vulnerable at the end of one cycle and the beginning of the next. The seventh of these seven-year cycles was thought to be particularly climactic. <laughs> now, do some quick math in the back of your napkin, um, not if you're driving. Just do it in your head. Yeah. And you'll realize that the seventh of these seven-year cycles happens when a person turns 49 years old. And that's about the same time that women today experience symptoms of menopausal syndrome. But the climactic wasn't explicitly tied to menstruation. And more importantly, it was thought to be something that both men and women experienced. It wasn't at all this gendered experience that we've come to think about today. I didn't realize how many times I was going to make Layla say the climactic. <laughs> I enjoyed it. It was fun. Anyway, so you might be thinking, fine, men didn't write about menopausal syndrome or anything like that. Uh, but frankly, there is a lot about the female experience that men never bothered to write about. So what does that mean? Another good question is, did women ever talk about getting hot flashes and headaches in their uh, 40s and 50s uh, in this period before the, the 18th century. As far as we can tell, not really. They didn't really talk about this. Um, if they had, you would expect it to come up in recipe books and other kinds of medical writings uh, by women. Um, and recipe books are a great source for understanding how women in the past thought about and treated a wide variety of kind of quote unquote women's issues. Um, and like, this is kind of how we know that women have always like had methods of birth control or like had abortions because you can see writing about it in these recipe books. Um, but they just didn't talk about it. What uh, talk about what we'd now call menstrual syndrome in any particular way. And uh, interestingly, though, all of this changed pretty abruptly in the early 1700s. So in 1710, a Prussian physician named Simon David Titus wrote a dissertation called On the End of Menstruation as the Time for the Beginning of Various Diseases, which is such a mellow, just like, come on, dude, chill. <laughs> um... In, in the decades that followed, uh, medical professionals of all kinds started to write about complications associated with the end of menstruation, um, and by the middle of that century, um, almost all gynecological textbooks mentioned diseases of aging women. Uh, so the ceasing of menstruation was suddenly said to cause seizures, uh, emaciation, scurvy, cancer, and more. Uh, and doctors, of course, gave it a lot of horrifying names because doctors uh, are good at that. Um, and the names were things like Women's Hell, uh, which is my favorite, um, <laughs> and Green Old Age, which I feel like must be some kind of reference to green sickness. 
um, mm-hmm. and death of sex, which I can't tell if that <laughs> means like death of one's genderedness or stopping of having sex, but it could be both. Um, and then they also started using these older terms like the climactic and the critical age to refer only to women and specifically to menstruation. Can I just say we're really racking up a fabulous vocabulary list here. <laughs> <laughs> like some of these are real cool. Women's hell, death of sex. They do they do make it seem pretty metal, as we were saying before. <laughs> yeah. Death Death of Sex is the first album of menstruation cessation. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so in eighteen twelve, this terrible new disease afflicting old women finally got its name, menopause. And this term was coined by a Parisian doctor named Charles Paul Louis de Gardin. Gardin? My French is atrocious. At first, <laughs> you can read it in the transcript. At first, it was supposed <laughs> to be a neutral medical term that kind of was meant to sort of sweep away, you know, primitive old superstitions um, about old age. But in the fashion of many things like this in the 19th century, what uh, ended up, what it ended up really doing was sort of formally medicalizing the aging process for women um, while completely ignoring that same process for men. As time went on, the list of problems associated with menopausal syndrome continued to grow. Victorian gynecologist Edward Tilt even wrote that women experienced, quote, a, quote, loss of feminine grace and claimed that their features and body became more masculine because their skin became flabby and they grew more straight facial hair. (laughs) And, of course, in good Victorian fashion, doctors tended to blame modern vices and immoral behavior uh, for the symptoms of menopausal syndrome. Aging women were encouraged to avoid such things as Dancing, gambling, (gasps) alcohol, vigorous exercise, uh, of course, sexual excitement of any kind. Out of the question. (laughs) And they were told to spend their time instead going on gentle walks and caring for others. Can I just say, though, that going on gentle walks and caring for others should be general life advice across genders, across age. Everyone should enjoy gentle walks and caring for each other. Yeah, really, the world would be a better place (laughs) if we all just did more of those two things. Yeah, exactly. Think of how applicable this is to a whole range of problems. (laughs) (laughs) I I will say, though, that I think the caring for others means, like, you should become the nursemaid of your family. Oh, yeah. No, that's totally what it means. (laughs) Just want to point that out. So along with seeking advice from doctors, women also purchased patent medicines and cooked up herbal remedies to calm their symptoms. One of the most famous of those was Lydia Pinkman's vegetable compound. And everyone needs to go look up Lydia Pinkman. And I'll include some links in the show notes because her story is fascinating. Um, Pinkman was a Quaker woman from New England who was first who first began selling her remedies for a variety of quote unquote female complaints in the 1870s. Her vegetable compound claimed to be quote a sure cure for prolapsus uteri or falling of the womb <laughs> and all female weaknesses, including leucorrhea, painful menstruation, inflammation, and ulceration of the womb. 
irregularities, floodings, etc. That is a very Yikes. long title. Also, what are floodings? <laughs> I feel like I have I have heard that before in like Victorian context, but I don't know what it is. It sounds terrible. Oh my god. So Pinkman's vegetable compound included black cohosh, which is known to relieve hot flashes, and fenugreek, which nursing mothers still take today to improve milk supply. <laughs> it also contained unicorn root, life root, and pleurisy root, all preserved in 19% alcohol. I feel like the alcohol, like so many things in the patent medicine world, the alcohol, I'm sure, was oh, doing yeah. a lot of the work here. Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Um, so we do want to say that uh, women were going to doctors in the 19th century, suffering from hot flashes and headaches and anxiety around the time that their period stopped. Um, and doctors, like, weren't making up the symptoms, uh, though, of course, they chose to categorize those symptoms in a specific way. Um, and, yeah, just, you don't want to give the impression that, like, these things are fake or that women were making them up, but... The truth is that something happened in the 18th and 19th century in Europe that changed how people thought about aging women's bodies and how aging women themselves uh, thought about their bodies. And uh, that really gets me to thinking about other sort of medical conditions, or maybe we should say medicalized conditions, um, that are real and should be taken seriously, but whose where our understanding of them maybe isn't 100% purely biological i mean nothing is a hundred percent purely biological everything is a little bit social but historian susan mattern describes menopause as a cultural syndrome uh for the kinds of reasons that we've been laying out here where it's something that is at least partially kind of the idea of it so is socially constructed um and we'll be talking uh about her some more about that in our interview with her so if you're a woman in her 50s in late 19th in the late 19th century who is suffering from really awful hot flashes and headaches you might pick up a bottle of Lydia Pinkham's vegetable compound or maybe you would take an herbal remedy that all the women in your family swore by if you could afford to go to the doctor he would probably tell you to go on calming walks or even more likely insist that you stop drinking <laughs> But if you went to that doctor in the early 20th century, he might suggest a new treatment, eating desiccated cow ovaries. Uh, well, that sounds bananas, um, but it was actually a very primitive form of treatment that lots of people are familiar with today, estrogen replacement therapy. At the turn of the 20th century, medical researchers became increasingly interested in endocrinology or the study of hormones. Uh, while they weren't completely sure how hormones worked, they knew that there were chemicals produced by specific organs that had certain essential functions. And they also knew that other mammals produced similar hormones. So in 1898, when a woman in Berlin approached her doctor complaining of symptoms of menopause syndrome, he fed her fresh cow ovaries as an experimental therapy and by that time, experiments on animals had led doctors to believe that ovaries produced a hormone that had something to do with the female reproductive system, and that menopausal syndrome had something to do with changes in the production of that hormone. 
Today, we know that ovaries produce estrogen and that menopause is associated with a drop in estrogen levels. So they weren't that far off. So the idea of prescribing a woman a kind of estrogen supplement wasn't that crazy, but still, yuck. (laughs) Still wouldn't do it. I mean, did they cook them? I'm sorry. We don't have to talk about this. I just, I can't stop thinking about it now. I know. So I was, there was also a whole debate about whether, like, desiccating them and turning them into a powder they would still work and like some doctors would be like no they have to be fresh and other doctors would be like no just give the poor woman a powder (laughs) do you put the do you like stir it into tea or do you like do rails of (laughs) (laughs) so over the next 30 years um or so Ovarian therapy, as this was called, uh, became an accepted treatment for women experiencing severe symptoms of menopausal syndrome. Uh, So doctors prescribed women fresh or desiccated ovaries from cows, sheep, and other farm animals. I think because the farm animals were easily accessible and, like, nearby and stuff. Yeah. Um, And to be fair, doctors weren't throwing dried reproductive organs at every woman over 50 who walked into their office. Uh, That would be rude. This was a treatment that doctors used in rare circumstances when other treatments didn't work and a patient's symptoms were debilitating in a pretty severe way. But it was an option. Like, it was on the table as something. And thankfully, in order for estrogen replacement to continue to work, uh, women didn't have to eat cow organs forever um, because estrogen was isolated in uh, 1929. And synthetic estrogen was developed in 1938. Uh, So by this point, ovarian therapy had been renamed hormonal therapy. uh, And doctors were a little more confident that it actually worked. Uh, It also now didn't involve so much of the eating of cow ovaries. Um, (laughs) But they continued to use the treatment cautiously. Um, doctors saw the drop in estrogen and the symptoms associated with it as a normal process, and they worried that overprescribing estrogen would in the long run um, just pro- prolong menopausal syndrome and delay the body's adjustment to changed hormone levels. So this was really only if a woman was like, I literally haven't slept for a week or like I can't mm-hmm. get out of bed because of my headaches yeah in case you thought that we were going to end on a note where doctors are being reasonable (laughs) about women's bodies (laughs) boy have i got a story for you so in 1963 a brooklyn-based gynecologist named robert wilson published an article in the journal of american geriatric society arguing that untreated menopause was dangerous and left women at risk for hypertension, high cholesterol, osteoporosis, arthritis, and severe depression. He naturally also said that it robbed women of their (laughs) femininity and left them shells of their former selves. According to Wilson, postmenopausal women experience life, quote, through a gray veil, and they live as docile, harmless creatures missing most of life's values. End quote. As soon as you hit 50, you're the walking dead if you're a woman. Yep. Yep. You're, you are useless to society and also sad. It's unpleasant and I don't want to look at you. See, I can experience most of these things on my own without menopause. <laughs> Severe depression, high cholesterol, hot flashes. 
headaches. Will that make my transition with the change easier? (laughs) That sounds, I'm sure, like the 19th century doctors that we talked about earlier. But unlike Victorian doctors who had little to offer women who had been so so tragically unsexed by menopause, uh, Dr. Wilson had a cure. (laughs) He would give them estrogen replacement therapy. Uh, Throwing caution to the wind, he encouraged women to begin taking estrogen as they approached menopause and to continue taking it indefinitely. So in both the 1963 article and in a 1966 follow-up book that he titled Feminine Forever, Wilson further described menopause as a, quote, deficiency disease like diabetes that had to be cured with estrogen replacement therapy. This book sold 100,000 copies in seven months, and magazines like Time and Newsweek also published articles about Wilson's cure for menopause. Between 1963 and 1975, estrogen sales quadrupled. You know, putting in a timeline here when, like, this this guy's stuff was coming out and being publicized really is putting into perspective some of the things my family has said yeah about menopause yeah. like clearly influenced by yes during a hundred percent yeah it's one of those things where you're like oh this is where all these things that seem like common yeah. knowledge that's from. why you said that. yeah <laughs> yeah and today doctors and patients are a little more cautious about estrogen replacement therapy Studies since 1975 have sometimes linked its long-term use for postmenopausal women to cancer and heart disease. Other studies have shown that it can slow the effects of osteoporosis, and it is still seen as a good way to manage severe symptoms of menopausal syndrome. But regardless of a person's specific medical needs, it's hard to escape the fact that when it comes down to women and only women, people seem to think that old age is something that needs to be cured. Yeah, it's just, it's like, men get osteoporosis too. Like, I'm just going to throw that out. Like, one of the things that is that does seem to be generally accepted is that, like, estrogen replacement therapy is, like, good for combating osteoporosis. And osteoporosis is a serious, serious medical problem. But it's not just women that get osteoporosis, and yet all of this is about that. I think Wilson's, like, like death of femininity thing has is probably, like, more lastingly influential even mm-hmm. than, like, his idea of, you know, curing yeah. Yeah. menopause. Because, it, like, I think that the tide is turning on the idea of curing menopause, mm-hmm. but I do think that there is still this, like, very kind of tenacious idea that like old women are not feminine and they can never recover their femininity and that like once you hit 50 it's just like a downward slope into nothingness and like for for women in you know if you're not feminine then like you don't have any cultural capital yeah as a woman yeah well because it's like women go through this stage of like getting into like your late 30s and 40s men may not want to bone you anymore so you've kind of lost a little bit of your usefulness but you might at least still be able to produce offspring so you still have some usefulness but then when that's completely gone no one wants to screw you anymore and you can't produce kids get out of here Mm -hmm. and 
and like women literally do talk about how they, you know, as they, they kind of sometimes for some of them, there's a moment where sort of they get up and they go through their day and they realize that they were kind of wildly invisible. Um, that is, I think, something that, that aging women talk about sometimes. It's like, oh, my God, I just like no longer exist to the people around me. Uh, and that, I mean, there are times when that sounds great to me, not gonna lie, but that is mostly coming from a place of, you know, you don't, yeah, it can be exhausting being noticed all the time as a woman. (laughs) Right, so, yeah, you get, like, uh, for the first half of your life, like, way too much unwanted attention. Right. And then for the second half of your life, you're, you're just dead to everyone around you until you're actually dead. You are covered in a gray veil. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. Yep. That's right. On that note, uh, shall we turn to our interview to talk more about why all of this is a problem, but also where it came from? (laughs) Sounds good. Excellent. And now we're excited to welcome Dr. Susan Mattern on the podcast. Uh, Dr. Mattern is a distinguished research professor in the history department at the University of Georgia and the author of The Slow Moon Climbs, The Science, History, and Meaning of Menopause. Uh, in the Slow Moon Climbs, uh, Dr. Mattern looks at menopause from prehistory to the present and argues that menopause is an essential life stage that has been integral to the flourishing of the human species. Uh, so welcome to the podcast. I'm happy to be here. Thank you. So in your book, you describe menopause syndrome as a uh, quote-unquote cultural syndrome um, because it has been experienced differently by different societies across time and space. And Today, we've been spending some time talking about the different ways menopause has been understood throughout history, too. Can you explain a little bit more about what you mean by menopause being a a cultural syndrome? Yeah, I can explain that. So the reason, the main reason I think I try to talk about menopause as a cultural syndrome is that it really looks like a cultural syndrome and kind of walks and quacks like a cultural syndrome (laughs) in terms of... um, you know, there's been some very sophisticated uh, research into uh, by this discipline people called transcultural psychiatrists into these kinds of syndromes that are very that uh, are specific to um, to specific cultures, and they, in some ways, they are specific to the cultures that form them, but in other ways, they do have a lot of things in common, and you can sort of describe them as a class of phenomena. And menopausal syndrome really has all of the markers of this class of phenomena. So, for example, just about all of the symptoms that are commonly associated with menopause or that scientists associate with menopause when they give you, for example, a checklist of symptoms and say, check off, you know, this or that if you've experienced it. So when uh, researchers talk about what they think are the symptoms of menopause, there's a huge number of them, as you as you, as you you probably know, but they're all in a certain category. And that is a category of symptoms that overlap with the symptoms of autonomic nervous system arousal. That is when we get anxious or when we have any kind of fight flight kind of response, even if it's sort of an unconscious response, our bodies tend to respond in certain ways. And some of those ways are sleep problems, cognitive issues, pain of almost any kind, heat and chilling sensations, palpitations, all kind of, uh, gastric problems. Uh, there's a huge range of things that our body does in that situation. Now, when we have an idea or a concept of a, um, of a disease, 
that has these symptoms, which are also very general symptoms. They're not really specific to anything. They're typical of a lot of things. What tends to happen is that we focus on those symptoms we think are most significant. So we have this concept of a disease that has X as a symptom. Maybe it's dizziness, for example, for a lot of Asian syndromes. And then when we feel dizzy, we think, oh, I've got X. It makes us anxious, which makes us then feel more dizzy because it's one of these, <laughs> right? So, and even though this sounds kind of simplistic, our brains are so good at picking up on sometimes really unconscious cues and generating these syndromes. So we'll pay more attention to that symptom. It will get worse. We'll pay more attention to it. And through this kind of feedback loop, we can generate certain kinds of very specific phenomena. And when we think about it, that really explains a lot about menopause. It explains why it's such a prominent thing in modern Western cultures. Uh, because of its position in modern Western medicine, it's been exported to a lot of other places. But when we look at pre-modern societies, we often don't really see a concept of menopause. Or even if we do, it's quite different um, from what we're talking about, the experience that we think of as menopause. One very very striking feature that menopause has in common with a lot of these sort of anxiety type cultural syndromes is the hot flash, that a lot of these other syndromes have these kind of spit fits or spells or sometimes what they think of as seizures. A panic attack in our panic disorder in uh, Western psychiatry is an example of one of these kinds of problems where you have this rapidly escalating sudden onset episode with rapidly escalating symptoms that then sort of goes away. And the way that I, I got really, really interested in the hot flash when I was writing the book, and like, what is a hot flash? And what do we think a hot flash is? Because nobody ever defined it for me, to be honest. <laughs> um, and so I read, you know, what medical researchers think a hot flash is. And it's very interesting why they think that's what it is. And, you know, the sort of the history of the literature on it. Um, there is this sort of scientific tradition about what a hot flash is. And it's very similar to um, what we see, for example, with panic disorder or what we hmm. see in a lot of other cultural syndromes. So in fact, if you have a hot flash as described in medical literature, you might qualify for a panic attack by DSM <laughs> criteria. So, you know, well, so there's a lot of similar in those two phenomena, because I have some experience researching cultural syndromes for other reasons, and I've written other other analyses of cultural syndromes, I sort of, the more that I looked at menopause, um, and I was interested in, you know, where does this concept come from, and how did it develop, and so on, uh, the more I sort of felt like, well, this is really, um, you know, this is another example. And I didn't actually start out trying to make that argument, but that's kind of where I ended up. Mm, that's fascinating. In putting together the larger episode around this, yeah, that was one of my interesting, like, discoveries in looking at the various researches. It's like a kind of, in the Western world, menopause seems to sort of appear at a certain, in a certain time and place. Yeah, it's very uh, specific time. Yes, it is. It's yeah, not there, yeah. and then suddenly it's there, and it's a yeah. big, you know, it's a big change from yeah. within a few years. Uh, so the other thing that you talk about in your book is is kind of the ancient people and prehistorical people and aging mm -hmm. and the fact that for for most uh, mammals, it is in most animals, even it's unusual 
to have fe- have females or any uh, any gender live past reproductive age. So it's pretty unusual that human females live for like quite a good span of time post menopause. Yes. And so yeah, can you talk a little bit about that and sort of the the grandmother hypothesis? It is very interesting, isn't it? And so this is like obviously not my specialty. So when I was writing this part of the book, I was reading other people's theories and ideas and the uh, sort of the grandmother, if you will, of the grandmother hypothesis. Uh, her name is Kristen Hawks and she works at the University of Utah. So that's really her idea. And I talk about the grandmother hypothesis, and I also talk about some other sort of evolutionary theories of human life history and of aging and menopause, and I try to put them all together in the end. I don't know how uh, successful that is, but in any case, so why do we age? This is a question that's sort of a classic question in evolutionary biology. It's not really easy to explain because nature should select against something like that, right? should select for health and survival and long life and reproduction. And to some extent it does, but for various reasons, sort of in the mid 20th century, theorists started coming up with pretty good explanations of why it is that organisms age. Um, However, according to these classical theories of senescence, we really shouldn't live beyond our ability to reproduce. There really isn't going to be a lot of selection. There shouldn't be a lot of selection for living beyond when we can reproduce those genes because once we're not reproducing anymore you know our genes are free to run rampant and accumulate all kinds of uh, problems and so on because they're not going to be reproduced so uh, and there was even a a sort of a nickname for this idea it's called the wall of death hypothesis you know there's a lot of recognition that there are factors that can reduce that sort of wall of wall of death effect and when we look at the real world especially among mammals who tend to you know take care of babies after they're born um, we see that most mammals Mammals do, it's it's hard to calculate, and we haven't really had the statistical tools to figure out, you know, how are we defining post-reproductive life, but most mammals seem to have a small post-reproductive lifespan, so that there'll be a period at the end of their life when maybe they're not going to have another baby, but they'll still live a little bit longer than the next birth interval. And the reason for that is probably investment in the next generation, so their investment in their offspring probably explains that a little bit. However, just in 2011, 2013, uh, a a team of researchers developed a new way to measure post-reproductive lifespan. It's hard. If you think about it, how long does an animal live? Well, you know, some lions live this number of years and some lions live a lot longer because there's always a lot of, you know, there's always a lot of variation in longevity. You know, how do we know if uh, if uh, that lion has outlived its reproductive life and so on? It's not actually that easy to answer these questions, but since 2011, but people knew there's something going on, right? There's something going on with humans. However, there's now a new way to do this, and it's called post-reproductive representation. And it's a measure of basically how many adult females in a population at any time will be post-reproductive. So it measures not only the length of post-reproductive lifespan, but how common it is and how much of a feature it is of that animal. By this measure, most animals have a very small post-reproductive lifespan, or they don't have one, including a lot of mammals, uh, including chimpanzees don't seem to have any post-reproductive lifespan to speak of. They continue to have offspring until they're old and won't stop, you know, basically until they die. But humans have a huge post-reproductive representation compared to other animals. So even excluding all modern populations, just looking at 
populations that don't have modernization, don't have modern medicine, or whether it's looking at records from societies before modernization. Uh, looking at those societies, we see that humans rarely, you rarely see a post-reproductive representation less than 30%. That means that 3% of adult women are post-reproductive in the population, which is huge. I mean, that's not wall of death. That, that demands some kind of evolutionary you know, explanation. The only other animals that there's two species of toothed whales. One is orcas, the killer whales that you get, that, that most people are familiar with. And orcas have been very extensively studied and they appear to have a, also a very substantial post-reproductive lifespan for females, not for males. Males die much younger in that species. Humans are kind of unique in this respect. And, and then the question becomes, you know, how do we explain uh, why this occurs. We seem to have a long, naturally occurring post-reproductive lifespan that's probably adaptive. It probably arose because it was useful in some way. Um, it's, it's not really possible to argue that it's just an artifact of modernity anymore, it is a natural part of our lives. And it's kind of hard to explain away except as um, something useful. The most sort of most interesting ways to explain this have to do with transfers of resources. So I talked about classical senescence theory. It talks about trade-offs that the human body has to make. So we trade off growth against maintenance, against reproduction. And, you know, that balance kind of explains why we age uh, and why we die. But... There's a fourth factor. So people thinking about menopause added a fourth factor to the theory, which is transfers. That is, if we are transferring resources from older generations to younger generations, it changes the math completely, very substantially, so that post-reproductive life can evolve in those circumstances because it's so helpful to have older people who are not reproducing, who are not producing more competitors for those resources, who are just producing and not reproducing, that is. Um, that's so helpful in that kind of species where you're doing those resource transfers. Models show that you can get post-reproductive lifespan that way. So we think that's what happened. One of the fascinating things about the grandmother thesis, for me anyway, is that it really contradicts this popular idea that women in particular outlive their usefulness. Oh, yes. It's, yeah. Yeah, that, that, yeah. yeah. I mean, and that was always kind of unlikely, right? Um, <laughs> right. <laughs> so what is it? Yeah. So what I talk about in the book, and this is what most um, anthropologists believe is, and the, the you know, and especially since in the last couple of years, since we've had these new ways of measuring post-reproductive lifespan that are so convincing, is that, yeah, we would not have, we, we have it because it's useful. We have post-reproductive lifespan is something that's unique to humans that has been a tremendous advantage in our history and is part of uh, this sort of group of traits that makes us especially adaptable to all kinds of circumstances. And it's one reason why we've been able to colonize almost every ecological niche. For example, uh, when we have this post-reproductive lifespan, it's part of a strategy that means that we can invest a lot in children, that childhoods can be longer, mm -hmm. we can invest in skill-intensive strategies, um, we have more adults to children, we live longer as part of this whole complex. Um, as a result, we can accumulate skills, we can practice, we have expertise, we have culture, we can teach that expertise to younger generations as part of that, it's a kind of resource transfer. So basically, you know, we are 
are with if we think of ourselves as this exceptionally smart technological cultural adaptive kind of animal uh, that's because of menopause. And the other thing that it does is it allows us to reproduce very quickly because what we think happen is grandmothers are helping their daughters to care for their grandchildren. And that means the daughters can have babies much more quickly. Um, mm -hmm. So even though you're not having and it, so it, it makes for a very flexible strategy. So when there's an opportunity, when conditions are good, human populations can grow extremely fast. Mm -hmm. uh, and we've seen, especially in the modern period, we see evidence of this, but um, it's, you know, it also explains certain aspects of, of our prehistory is that human populations have the p possibility to boom in very uh, favorable circumstances, um, which makes it easier when there's a crash, when something bad happens, it wipes out either a whole population or a large part of a population, we can recover that much faster. And that's one reason why we have been, again, why we've been such a successful um, kind of animal so far. I want to ask a little bit more about this idea of um, population. And one of the things that you talk about is what the history of menopause can teach us about that distinction between fertility control and social programs like eugenics. So can you explain um, that difference there and what exactly the history of menopausal women can teach us about that distinction? Um, yeah. So so fertility control is means being able to make decisions about reproduction. So being able to limit reproduction, for example, if you want to. So for now, for in our society, it's a very important part of reproductive freedom, right? The ability to not reproduce when you don't want to reproduce or when it's not the right circumstances and so on. Right. And this is something that's been an important part of our history in particular uh, since the turn to agriculture. And when we have agricultural societies that are land-limited societies, fertility control is, is important to well-being because um, it's very easy to have too many heirs uh, more than your resources can support. And so throughout sort of pre-modern history, agricultural societies have usually have a huge number of really uh, ingenious ways to manage that problem. Um, the problem of uh, either too many heirs or too many daughters or strategies of marriage, keeping property in the family and all of these things. All of these are very closely linked together. And so fertility control has been part of our history for a long time. And sometimes it's something on the individual level where uh, a woman or a couple want to control their fertility for some reason. Sometimes it's a family thing where the family's making decisions about its resources. Or it can also be a state thing. It can be coercive. Um, we've had some ghastly, you know, episodes in our history where governments have forced uh, fertility control on populations for one reason or another. But fertility control is a more broad concept, right? And it's something that we need as a species because we evolved to be this boom and bust species, right? We evolved to be a fast reproducing, colonizing species. Um, but at the same time, because we have menopause and because we have post-reproductive life phase, uh, we can have a very flexible reproductive strategy. So if when it's, you know, when things aren't so good, we have the capability of 
using that non-reproductive part of our population to we invest in resources, we invest in training, we do these long-term strategic things. Um, and we do have a, a large part of the population that's not reproducing. And that's, you know, that, that allows us to be more flexible. Um, but fertility control, especially, as I said, whenever la land is limited and resources are limited, it's been a very important part of our history. Now, eugenics was a um, kind of it's sort of a catch-all term for a bunch of sort of ideas and ideologies that arose in the early 20th century um, and really remained popular through the mid to even in some places late 20th century. Uh, fortunately, are not much are not something that we talk about today. We now pretty much agree this was a bad idea. But in any case, <laughs> eugenics yeah. is the idea yes. that that some kinds of people should not reproduce and that should be prevented from reproducing. In the United States, over the course of the 20th century, at one point, you know, most states had eugenics laws on their books at some point over the course of the 20th century. So something that's very widely practiced as part of U.S. policy. And it most, these kinds of laws mostly targeted uh, poor people, uh, ethnic minorities, um, gay people, people perceived as mentally ill with forced sterilization, sometimes even castration you know, bad, bad things. Uh, and this was done quite a lot. So uh, we know of about 60,000 cases of these kinds of, you know, mandatory sterilization um, episodes. And that's probably a vast underestimate of what really happened. It was especially popular in California. Obviously, uh, this kind of thinking, eugenics thinking was a big part of Nazi uh, ideology, especially that's how we most of it, when we think eugenics, we mostly think Hitler. However, it's something that was much broad, much more broadly part of Western culture and also part of United States culture for a while. Um, so that's, as you can see, that's quite different from the idea of, you know, fertility control is a, is a very broad concept. It's a tool that we've used and it's, you know, and it's, and it can be a very good thing. And in some ways, it, depending on circumstances, it can be a response to constraining circumstances and it can be done in different ways. And some of them are not fun to talk about, like infanticide. Uh, you can see that eugenics is a very specific kind of historical phenomenon. Um, fortunately, mostly limited to the 20th century, although who knows, maybe it will come back. Oh, let's hope not. <laughs> let's hope not. Right. You know what I mean, right. we are living in these times. So. Yeah. Yes. It's, yes. It's one of those, like, yeah. Uh, yeah. I want to get back to this idea of like writing a big world history. So can you talk a little bit about what that experience was like and uh, some of kind of the the challenges and benefits of taking that approach? Because it's, it's, it's a seems such like such a big task. <laughs> it's, I, it does seem like a big task. I can see how it does. Um, however, to me, uh, well, to me, it was mostly, it's mostly the decision to do it because you spend <laughs> most of your professional life feeling like, oh, you know, I need to have all the languages and I need to have all this expertise that I don't have. And then at some point you realize, well, nobody else is going to do it. And so, you know, <laughs> if somebody, if anybody's going to write on a big subject like this and somebody, I think somebody has to, you know, I guess it might as well be me. And I get that people read the book and it's it's pretty densely argued and it seems like a, a, a giant task. And of course it was, and I spent years on the research and so on. But to me, it seemed easy because I didn't have to read ancient Greek. I wasn't, 
reading a lot of German, you know. I had to learn some math and some evolutionary theory, and I had to, you know, I had to learn a lot of things. But learning's fun, um, yeah. and it wasn't particularly. It was, uh, you know, to me, it seemed it was easy and fun. I loved reading the scientific articles. They're all again, they're all in English. Um, the elephant studies, the whale studies. It was all just so fascinating. It was something new. So to me, it was exciting and fun, and and you know, compared to what I usually do, relatively easy. And um, I just was really grateful that I had the time to invest in trying to answer these big questions that I think a lot of people have, but most people don't have the time. You know, they're not paid yeah. to to do this for you know eight eight or ten hours a day. So um, so yeah. So to me, this was a fun project. Very cool. Yeah, it, it does. It does feel in in like a refreshing way, very counter to the the broader the the more traditional academic. You get narrower and narrower and narrower in your expertise as things go on. Right. Uh, it can happen. Yeah. yeah. But it doesn't have to. Right. Yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so, do do you have any? Uh, new research or on the horizon or are you going to be doing more with this work or what's next for you oh well that's a what an interesting question thank you for asking well i have a backlog of uh chapters and stuff that i owe so i'm still working my way through that <laughs> you know i put everything on when i'm doing a book i put everything on the else on the back burner because otherwise i won't get it done i'm terrible at multitasking um but i do well i mean it's gonna sound boring but i i want to do a um a big article on shepherds, comparative shepherding. I, that sounds, I have sheep at home. So I think a lot of, <laughs> That's cool. about, I think a lot about livestock and about domestication, domesticated animals and how we care for them. And this sort of turn to, when I talk about the turn to agriculture, the turn to agriculture and pastoralism and what that means and what it means to be a shepherd. And Historically, there's all there are always these really fascinating sort of marginal characters just on the edges of civilization, sort of between free and slave, between, you know, sort of citizen and bandit. So they're just really interesting characters. So I, I thought I'm just going to I'm going to indulge my my curiosity and write about shepherds for a bit. And then <laughs> and then I might go back and write about uh, the origins of property. If you got through it and everybody hates it. People don't like the second part of the books in three parts, and people don't like the second part as much as the the other two parts. But to me, this was the most interesting part because this really transformed. You know, I study pre-modern societies for a living, and this project kind of transformed how I see how I see pre-modern societies in a general, sort of on a big picture way. And, um, you know, it was the, sort of the realization that property changed everything, that for most of our history as a species, property was just not a thing. Mm -hmm. And what happened when property became, was, in, was basically invented, you know, what happened? Uh, it changed everything about us, just as profoundly as modernization did, maybe more profoundly, because modernization is still this property-based system in most of the ways that we do it. So I want to, I'm really interested in that question of, you know, how and why uh, do we develop this idea? What is it, you know, in its earliest stages and what did it, what did, what did that transformation mean? And so that takes me all the way back to the Neolithic. Um, I'd probably go back to the Neolithic Mediterranean just because that's the place where I can most competently look at the materials and just yeah, that's the, my next 
big ambitious project would be something like that. That sounds fascinating to me. Yeah, I I especially like this idea of these marginal shepherds living between being (laughs) citizens and bandits. (laughs) That sounds yeah. Shepherds are really interesting. Whenever you know, I well, it shows the shepherds abiding in the fields. You ever think about that? But I mean, the Christmas story is about the shepherds. What are they doing out there in the fields, keeping watches or flock by night? They're sleeping with the sheep. You know, (laughs) so they're really these sort of half wild kind of people. Yeah. yeah. Well, um, we wish you luck in your future research. And oh, thank you. If it ever crosses paths with Lady Science again, we hope that you'll be back on the show. We really appreciate you taking the time to talk with us about your book. And for listeners out there, we do have a review of this book on our website. So be sure you check that out and we'll link to it in the show notes. And we will also link to the book so that you can buy it yourself. Yeah. Thank you so much for being on the show today. Thank you. It was a pleasure. That's going to do it for us today. If you liked this episode, please leave us a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts so that new listeners can find us. Questions about any of the segments today? Tweet us at, at @ladyxscience or hashtag LadySciPod. For show notes, episode transcripts, to sign up for our monthly newsletter, pitch us an idea, and more, visit LadySciience.com. We are an independent magazine, so that means we depend on the support from our readers and listeners. You can support us through a monthly donation with Patreon or through one-time donations. Just visit ladyscience.com donate. And until next time, you can find us on Facebook at at LadyScienceMag and on Twitter and Instagram at at LadyXScience. <laughs>